McDonald's se está transformando en el mundo anime de McDonald's y te trae la nueva savory chili McDonald's sauce. Los mejores sabores se unen en esta legendaria salsa para que tus 10-piece chicken wackduggets, papitas y Sprite se conviertan en un meal ultra poderoso. Desbloquea un manga con tu meal y disfruta de un corto de anime cada semana. Solo en McDonald's. Badabababa, go! En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. Hi, Frida. Hi, Carmen. How's it going? Good. I am under a sheet in my living room with my cat staring at me. How are you? <laughs> it must be done. It must be done. <laughs> so what are we tackling in episode four? So originally we thought we would do a two-part series on El Periodo Especial, but we realized the point is to show what kind of environment our parents were dealing with in Cuba. While some of the situations might have been exacerbated during El Periodo Especial, the systems that they were describing as controlling their lives had been in place since the onset of the revolution. And so this is an opportunity to talk about something that's been a part of the Cuban experience for a very, very long time. The most important part here to get into is the fact that there's only one party. And you might think, okay, duh, that's the whole point of a communist society. But when you think about parties here in the U.S., you're looking at somebody give a speech on whatever news outlet you watch. And you might think, because I agree with this person and they are running for the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Libertarian Party, the Green Party. You might think, I agree with that person. And so therefore, I subscribe to that party and then I vote for that party. But in Cuba, there is one party and that party is one hive mind you must belong to. And that party sets up systems with multiple layers and at different parts of your life. Absolutely. There is no real way to be apolitical in Cuban society. So the option to not involve yourself in politics is not an actual option. And so you're either with us or against us. In this episode titled The Eyes and Ears, we're going to go into exactly all of those systems and how they permeate across society via Frida's parents who really tried super hard to not be involved. We begin by discussing the concept of being integrated. I asked my dad, what does it mean to be integrated in communist Cuba? Yeah, you, you have to follow the doctrine to the T and you have to be integrated in all the organizations that they created to control people. If you are a woman, you belong to the Federación de Mujeres Cubanas. If you live in a neighborhood, you are Cederista CDR, Comité de Defensa de la Revolución. So every block there is a CDR. It's not that you have a choice to say, I'm not going to be CDR. You are there. They put you there. Your name is there. It's the same thing for different military organizations like uh, militias de tropas territoriales, la defensa civil, brigada de respuesta rápida. The first organization that my mom mentions is CDR. CDR is Spanish for CDR. And CDR is an acronym for Comité de Defensa de la Revolución, which is the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution. So the CDR is an organization that exists at the block level and has a hierarchy that goes up and up and up at the town level and more. And this organization is a network of committees all over the island. 
These are essentially the eyes and the ears of the revolution. Their goal is to uphold the values of the revolution and report on counter-revolutionary activity. Fun fact, they were established to listen in on anyone who was supportive of Batista in the neighborhood during the revolution. And it just kept going because, you know, it was so useful. One of the responsibilities includes literally writing down who goes in and out of every single house in the neighborhood and what they do. As of 2010, over 8 million people of the 11 million or so population of Cuba are registered in the CDR. The CDR argues that it exists to also organize community festivals and act as a positive force in society, like promoting social welfare. But really, it's one way that the Cuban government exerts control over individuals' freedoms by monitoring people based on a very strict moral and political compass. Another institution that my mother mentioned was the Milicias de Tropas Territoriales. That translates to the Territorial Troop Militias. So this is a militia mostly consisting of quote-unquote volunteer women or young men that are enlisted for military service, the elderly, basically folks who wouldn't normally be in the military. A fun fact about the Milicias de Tropas Territoriales, in the 1980s, they constructed tunnels throughout the entire island of Cuba. These tunnels were constructed in order to offer shelter to people in the event of something terrible happening due to the Cold War, because Cuba, if you all remember, had a role in Cold War politics and were at the center of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was these elderly people and women and young kids just shoveling up tunnels and also laying dynamite. There was a tunnel being built underneath my family's house in La Habana, and my parents were always so pissed off about it because they used to get woken up in the middle of the night because they were trying to construct some tunnels. So basically, Cuba has a basement. <laughs> okay, quick quick aside. Hot take <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. You look at a map and Cuba is just such a little piojo. Like, <laughs> it's a little flea. Piojos are not fleas. Piojos are lice. It's such a piojo <laughs> and they're over there like mobilizing the fucking population to be like we got to build tunnels guys the americans are gonna attack no the americans don't care really like nobody cares no, they, they, all the articles around this time were like bush was like trust me we don't care about you yes. like <laughs> we really really don't sorry and <laughs> it's weird because at the same time there were all these cia efforts meant to like undermine the revolution and also kill castro so like there was so much conspiracy around the revolution and Cuba was actually a big enough player given that it was supported by the USSR and super, super close to the United States. But it was also un piojo. Yeah, in the grand scheme of yeah. things. Like we can say that in 2020 because, you know, hindsight is 2020. Oh. Anyway, moving <laughs> on. And okay, guys, so... All of these systems that we're describing, it's not really super important that you remember every single one of them. Like, we're not going to quiz you or anything, but we're just trying to illustrate the magnitude of <laughs> all of the different layers that this doctrine and hive mind is just seeping into. Okay, so there's La Defensa Civil, which is the civil defense, and it's a bunch of workers trained to defend their industry, and this is something that you're preparing for all the time, even during peacetime. All of these institutions we're mentioning, they're all civilian. Yep. They are ways to militarize 
and make civilians combative. There are so many organizations and so many groups for you to join and show how great of a communist you are. Yay! Okay, but the last one is La Brigada de Respuesta Rápida, which is the Rapid Response Brigade. And this one is really important because they're basically like the civilian muscle. These guys are specifically looking out for dissidents and then they take care of them, if you know what I mean. So I don't want to say it's like the Cuban mafia, but they kind of fulfill that role. We've explained all of these organizations, but really... This doesn't start when you're an adult. This starts way earlier, when you're little. The state essentially wants to get started really early on making a little communist. When you're little, you start a pionero. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the communist youth. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the Partido Communist after the university. When you're young, you are a pionero. Pionero means pioneer. So you're a pioneer of the revolution. And when you're older, but you're still young... You're part of La Juventud, which means the youth. You don't have to belong to the youth, but sometimes it was hard just because you were a student and have good GPA. They decided you are a joven ejemplar. They put those people into those organizations. I know people that actually suffer being there because after you're there, they push you to do things that you don't want to do. For example, you have to be combative. If you see someone doing something, you need to tell them and then tell the organization that Fulanito, Meganito are doing this and that. And if you don't do it, they don't kick you off from their youth. They keep you there, but they humiliate those young people. And those people used to live in so much stress. The pathway to being part of the youth is maybe you were a good student. Maybe you're a good speaker. And you're pulled in. You're told you are joven ejemplar. You're an exemplary youth. We're going to put you into this organization. But... Now that you're in the organization, you have to be combative. It means you have to learn to watch out for counter-revolutionary behavior and report on it. That's just the very beginning of an entire life of reporting on your peers, your family, and your friends. Yeah, this is where they start to groom people to really understand like you, your goal as a productive member of society is to watch out for counter-revolutionary behavior. And one of the most powerful tools used, not just in the youth, but when you're a pionero, when you become an adult, is something called an acto de repudio, which translates to an act of repudiation. My mom mentioned that if you did something wrong, which just means you did something that's counter-revolutionary, you were kept within the organization, but you were humiliated. So in these repudiation meetings, you might be asked to stand in front of an assembly of people. They tell you what you did wrong and they shame you. There are a lot of different levels of what un acto de repudio can be like. If you look online, you'll find actos de repudio that show people committing acts of violence against each other or big crowds of people outside shouting. But it's a tool that exists in various different forms to shame people and keep them in place. It also serves as a really great public display of consequence. People are observing what happens to other people who are not complying. My mom didn't mention it, but she's been part of an acto de repudio. She still carries it with her to this day when she was humiliated in front of a crowd of her peers for not being able to gather enough tobacco in La Escuela del Campo. 
Oftentimes, the things that qualify you for being shamed in this way are so nonsensical. It's not meant to deal with criminal behavior in the sense that you and I might think of it. It's not like a a crime that actually hurt anyone, but rather crimes of conscience, like thinking the wrong way, speaking the wrong way, not attending a meeting. That makes you counter-revolutionary, and you might end up in un acto de repudio. Definitely. So Frida's dad was not integrated. From very young age, they took away my pañoleta de pionero, my scarf, because I wouldn't comply. I was like a rebel without a cause. I was anti-system from the very early age. So uh, when I was growing up, I didn't get the best of the options. All Cuban school children have to wear a little pañoleta, which is a scarf. And that scarf is a symbol of being revolutionary and being un pionero. So as we have mentioned in El Periodo Especial, shit's really bad. There is no food, there are no resources, and you're not making any money. I heard that some people belong to the Partido Comunista because they have a chance to have some positions that allows you to steal more. Because people work to steal products from the government to live. It's not because they're that communist, just opportunist. Frida's mom is saying that there are reasons why people might become integrated, and that is because it might allow them opportunities to steal. Scarcity meant that there was higher incentive to try and belong to the system so that you might be able to gain opportunities in a society that has very little resources. There are many reasons for which a person might decide, oh, I really should play ball here. My dad says that when he was in college, they would actually park buses outside of the school and make a big announcement saying that anybody that was against the revolution could drop everything, get onto the bus, and then they would ship them off to the U.S., This was actually part of policy between the U.S. and Cuba in the 80s. And Cuba is very into this because they're trying to create a perfect little society of perfect little communists. So they were like, you don't agree, you can leave. And I've asked my dad so many times why he didn't get on that bus. And he specifically told me that he could have, but he knew that if he left right then and there with nothing to his name, that life would have been much harder in the U.S., not knowing the language, the education system, not knowing anybody, not having contacts. He would just be another kid showing up from Cuba versus staying around and finishing his degree. He knew he would be able to leave and revalidate his titles in the U.S. So that is one reason why somebody might choose to play ball with the communist regime. It seems like your dad chose the monster he knew, not the monster he didn't know. A lot of sacrifice goes into leaving the country that you were born in and raised in. Yeah. yeah. Even if it makes you miserable <laughs> to live there. So when my parents and I were doing this interview, we were talking about El Periodo Especial and they were describing how during that time, the government started giving away the opportunity to buy a bike, to one worker in an entire factory or one worker in an entire industry. That led to a lot of backstabbing. And that is how we actually got into a conversation around all the different systems that were involved, what it took for a worker in Cuba to get awarded the opportunity to buy a bike. Do you know what this reminds me of right now, what I'm envisioning? What? Do you, have you seen- Like Black Mirror? (laughs) No, but also a good one. Have you seen Mad Max, the movie? 
the recent I one? haven't, no. Okay, no, no, no. watch it. There's a scene in that movie where the nasty king, I can't remember his name, he basically opens up La Pipa with water and then a bunch of water comes out and all of the poor people come out with buckets just to catch drops of water. <laughs> That's what that reminds me of. Yes, 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 yes. They make a big meeting where they design people out of merits in your job. So it's a chance to buy the bike. They were in an assembly. And if you were a really, really, really good worker that put a lot of hours and you were integrated in the system, you will get to be selected to have the possibility to buy one of those. People were fighting between them and they trying to tell on each other. You can go and tell and inform the CDR, the CDR, or the Tropas Territoriales, or whatever institution. You can go and tell on that other person that works with you, so you can get the bicycle. So if there were three bicycles and you were number four in the list, you needed to get some dirty laundry on the other three so you could get the bicycle. Why is this public? Like... I understand the idea of scarcity and the government having very limited resources to offer to people. And I understand offering the element of competition so that people really like get their shit together. But then on top of that, was it necessary for that list to be public to create this animosity between people for a bike? So Carmen, I think it is necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's necessary if your goal is to create an environment where people are not trusting each other. Exactly. And so if the government is the only source that can offer you something like a bike and the way that you are able to get access to these resources is to play the game, then you're going to play the Hunger Games. I know. <laughs> That no. really is what it is. It's the Hunger Games. Okay. It's literally the Hunger Games. It's like you end up destroying people's lives in order to get to the end. And just like in Hunger Games, like, was it worth it? Exactly. For a bike. <laughs> this is like next level mind games. So you can either be someone who, you know, drinks a Kool-Aid and thinks that other people who are not revolutionary do not have enough merit. It's crazy. To get this reward. But you might also be someone who is incredibly practical but has also been raised in a system where the only legitimate ways to gain power, resources, and more, and to not be humiliated publicly, is to belong. This is another good example of how much this doctrine permeates through not only the different levels of society and the different institutions, but even within the psychology of the individual. So what is an example of dirty laundry? In the CDR, women had to be on guard from 11 to 2 and the men from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. to wait for the enemy on your street. So they used to assign you posts like this month on Wednesday is Frida from 11 to 2. And if you didn't go, then the other people could say Fulano didn't go on Friday to La Guardia Cederista. And then they say it on the assembly. Hey, you didn't go. And then you get to buy the bicycle and not that other guy. Back in, in Soy Valsera, I had specifically said that we couldn't just turn back. This is one of the reasons why we couldn't turn back. Because I guarantee you that somebody was up at four in the morning and was like, the Rodriguez family left at four in the morning. The CDR also makes an inventory of homes if they know you're going to leave the country. 
And then they make a post inventory after you leave because we know the government confiscates all of the property after you leave the country. Even though I spoke English and I was an engineer and all that, I couldn't get the better jobs because I wasn't integrated. I wasn't part of anything. Actually, I was trying always to bump all the meetings and all the procedures and all that with yelling. Down with the revolution, down with socialism, down with Fidel Castro. I was called antisocial and also peligrosidad, escoria. They could get you to jail for four years just for being dangerous to them. But remember, things there means something else. <laughs> What did it take to be called dangerous? Like, did you actually have to be dangerous or endanger anyone? For example, one way that you could be jailed for peligrosidad is if you spent a little bit of time without a job. The reason why it's considered dangerous to be unemployed for some time is because the idea is that if you are unemployed, it's because you are unemployable. And if you're unemployable, then you're not doing the things that you need to do in order to prove that you're a good communist. And so that's dangerous to the revolution. More than 90,000 Cubans are in prison today. And around 40,000 additional Cubans are in some form of apprehension or experiencing a reduction in their freedoms. The term peligrosidad actually accounts for a large percentage of these incarcerated Cubans. We are playing by a completely different set of rules and you need to know those rules because if not, then you're going to be considered dangerous to society. If you are considered peligroso, You don't really have to have any more justification to end up in prison. I know my dad nearly ended up in prison many times. Every 15 days, a guard would come to my home at the time to ask, we got a report that you didn't attend this meeting. And there was a police chief always inquiring. Someone in the neighborhood who was really high up in the Communist Party made excuses for my dad so that he wouldn't end up in prison. But he would have otherwise. Yeah. Because the people were, were like chivatos. A chivata or someone who's chivateando is an informer and it's someone who's snitching. And it's a role that you play as a person in Cuba to snitch on your peers. I know one person who was in the place I work. He was in the Brigada Respuesta Rápida. I knew that because he used to do the stories the next day. Say, okay, last night we went to Fulanito's house. We kicked him on the floor because he was playing the Ya Vienen Llegando song from Willy Chirino. And the whole brigada went, we broke the door and we kicked him. He was like vanagloriando. He was happy for doing that. I hate him so much just for saying that in front of everybody the next day. To be there, you actually have to be a really bad person because you are happy just to hit those people that were saying, I know with this system, just for playing a song. So we start to really see exactly what it means to be counter-revolutionary. Even just listening to a song by a Cuban-American exile, Willy Chirino, who is a titan 
in the world of salsa and Cuban music, just listening to a song by him is enough to get your door kicked down and totally kicked the living daylights out of. That is what the Brigada de Respuesta Rápida is there to do. I imagine this complete amargado, like not listening to any music in their house, hearing some music blasting from someone else's house, and they're just like, eh, Willy Chirino. Yeah. <laughs> and then like reporting on it, and then the Brigada's like, all right, we got him. And this guy's probably <laughs> no. like dancing with his escoba, being like, you know, dancing Willy with Chirino. Escoba, you can't. know, ya vienen llegando. Another That's thing. all he's doing. Yeah. He's just sing- He's just probably dancing a little bit of salsa. And this is counter-revolutionary. <laughs> by the way. This is a really good time for me to plug one of my favorite Cuban movies. It's called Fresa y Chocolate and it's a beautiful movie, heavy on the dialogue. Basically, it's a story of two men One of them is a revolutionary and the other one emblemizes what it means to be counter-revolutionary and they begin a friendship and the two spend the entire movie going back and forth on what it means to to be a person and what it means to be counter-revolutionary according to the government. And a lot of the counter-revolutionary things that the main character does is listening to music, reading books, consuming movies, consuming media that belongs to the enemy, which is the U.S. and anybody out there that is against communism. Highly recommend it. Fresa y Chocolate. It's kind of hard to get, but if you can watch it, it's a good one. Strawberry and chocolate. Mm -hmm. It's a classic. So the enemy... American imperialism. The Brigada de Respuesta Rápida is trying to stamp that out in Cuban locals. But the rhetoric of anti-imperialism and anti-Americanism justified this state of war. When you have a country in a state of war, you can justify a lot of nasty things, like extreme measures, if you say we are under attack. We have definitely seen that here in the U.S., We see it all over. It's a strategy. It's used to lead to greater authoritarianism and a really strong executive branch, you know, because war and because we need to defend the people. Now, spending decades and decades saying that there is a looming threat of war, it, it helps to justify a lot of these ridiculous things. Yeah. But then again, you know, hot take. It didn't help that there was a Bay of Pigs invasion. It didn't help that the CIA did have some failed attempts at killing Castro. And it didn't help that pre-revolution, American imperialism had a pretty big influence in Cuba. Honestly, state of war was a stretch, a huge stretch. And it was definitely a rhetorical tool used by the government. All it does now is create an enemy that lives right next door. So I know my parents have gone out of their way many times to explain to me that we were quote-unquote economic refugees and not political ones. I wonder how much they would agree with that statement now. I hear so much about all of the opportunities that they wanted for me that I almost wonder if they say that the whole we're economic refugees and not political ones just as like a residual fear that they need to be saying stuff like that. Thinking about it, going back to El Perido Especial, I truly believe that even if this was a a time of abundance, my parents continue to tell me, oh, I wanted you to have the ability, for example, to be able to choose what you study. We haven't gotten into that. You're not even able to really say, oh, I want to be a lawyer. Once you get to the end of high school, you can't actually pick your career. You have to, depending on your grades, you can put down three different career choices that you would be happy with and then what you get is what you get. My mom wanted to be an architect and she ended up 
doing biochemical engineering. Exactly. So, so like you don't even have choices. My parents continue to tell me that they wanted better opportunities for me at the same time that they're telling me that we're economic refugees. It doesn't quite add up, but I also don't blame them for putting it that way. At the end of the day, this is what life was like and is like in Cuba. It limits society, it doesn't allow people to fully participate to their potential. And that's what I think really drives people to leave the country and search for freedom and betterment. Papi, ya estamos en la última parte, y es la parte tuya. So there was a lottery from the United States in, in Cuba. I put my name on the lottery, but there were rumors that they were just doing that to see who was against the revolution and they can put you in jail. So we decided that I was going to enter the lottery and your mother didn't just in case so she could stay with you if for any reason they put me in jail. So my dad mentions a lottery and what he's describing is the special Cuban migration program known in Cuba as El Bombo. It was a visa that was agreed upon after the U.S. and Cuba had some migration talks. So throw back over to the Soy Balsera episode where we mentioned that after some back and forths, eventually the wet foot, dry foot policy was put in place. El Bombo was also part of that agreement. It meant that there was actually a minimum number of Cuban refugees that the United States had to take in. And part of it was through a process that was like a lottery because you just put your name in and maybe you got it, maybe you didn't. And it's called El Bombo because the machines are called bombos. I just wanted to throw that in there. <laughs> and one day, a guy came with a little bicycle because that was the like the UPS in here, a guy with a bicycle. Mm -hmm. And he told me from downstairs, hey, do you have any clothes to give me? He said, wow. Why would I give you clothes to donate? Because you live in the country, man. And he showed me the yellow packet. Everybody knew the yellow envelope was a sign that you were accepted for the lottery. I had to then come up with the money because at that time, everything was in dollars. You were supposed to go through a medical examination and all that. Also, the ticket for the plane in dollars and everything. I didn't have any money, but my two brothers were outside the country working as musicians. They lent me the money so I could travel alone first. Just because you won the lottery didn't mean that you got to come here. None of this gets done in Cuban currency. All of it is done in dollars, which Cubans don't have access to. Thanks to having family that actually was able to work outside the country as musicians. They had access to different currency and were able to lend my dad some money in order to pay for the medical exam as well as the interview with the embassy. I asked my parents and they said it was between $800 and $900 per adult and $600 per Per child. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. That's like, like a small fortune to a Cuban. Out of the people that actually managed to get this lottery, I can't imagine how many of them could scrounge up this amount of money. We got really lucky from actually getting the lottery to having access to family who was even willing to give us this amount of money. When you earn the lottery, it's just the right to order the interview. One of the requirements was having an affidavit from someone that living in the United States and having a job letter. Yeah, but because I spoke in English with the consul and I told him, just put me in the streets of Miami and I'm going to get a job and, and the rest is on me. Just put me there. 
So he believed in me because uh, my attitude put me in Miami in the streets there. And from then I take over. Yeah, I say I recommend you for the visa of the United States. Just because of the interview, he asked, but are you afraid of being alone? You know, stay. We are not afraid. We're just going to leave this country right away. We're going to work. We're not going to disappoint the United States. The first time I flew into a plane was from Cuba to Miami. All of a sudden, I'm in Miami with $20 that my elder brother gave me. And they retained me because I didn't have any family. I just had the clothes that I had on me. So in the Catholic, they fed me. I remember a big steak, the biggest steak ever in a soda and I was in La Gloria. And they gave me a belt and a toothbrush and the necessities and all that. And they put me in a motel by Biscayne Boulevard. Frida's dad is talking about the Catholics. So the Catholic Charities is a philanthropic institution that has many programs. One of their biggest programs is an immigrant and refugee aid program that helps people setting them up with housing, work, and helping them navigate the asylum process once they get to the U.S. And they don't only help Cuban refugees, although in Miami, that's one of the main organizations that does help Cuban refugees. I was waiting in two days to fly to Phoenix, Arizona for relocation. But then I started calling people from my youth that I knew they were here in Miami. And I started calling them, hey, can you come and get me? And the friend that at the end lent me the money to bring my wife and my daughter. She said, wait for me there. And she picked me up at the Catholic charity and signed me off and all the papers. And I said, no, he's going to stay with us in Miami. Mm -hmm. And that's how we ended up in Miami with a little help from my friends. I was born that day in 1995 when I arrived here in the United States of America. You mentioned before that Cubans like <laughs> that they're there for each other. The family that helped us had not seen my dad since he was like 10 years old. So they arrived in the United States during the Mariel boat yeah. lift, which is another wave of immigration. And so my dad managed to call them up. They offered my dad a place to stay and then eventually gave him the money that he needed in order to pay for the visa and the medical exam for my mom and for me. There's definitely something super powerful in unity from struggle. I think at the end of the day, one thing that really drives Cubans to help other Cubans is this common struggle. You went through the same thing I went through. I will help you out of it. How was it, mommy, for you and me to leave? We have a visa for three months. At that time, since it was the first lottery, we didn't have any experience and no much information about what was going to happen after that visa expired. After three months, if you don't leave the country, you already are like in the blacklist. We are grateful forever to that family that took him to their house and also lent the money to send it to Cuba. So she sent the money for you and I. After 20 days, we fly to the United States in an airplane, and you were so happy and talking the whole flight, talking and repeating the same thing. I love this avioncito. Me encanta el avioncito. Mira que lindo, pero me gusta, pero mami me gusta. Me gusta viajar. Me gusta el avión. You were so happy. Then we arrived to the United States, new life after that day. So living the country that was living a nightmare and arriving to a country with liberty. The economic reason wasn't the first reason we traveled. It was there, of course, but it wasn't that for us. It was actually the liberty. So why did we make this episode, Frida? Why did we 
get into all of this? Why did we talk about my immigration story, El Perido Especial, your immigration story? We were trying to uncover, on the one hand, what are all the systems and factors at play that made Cuba and make Cuba such a difficult place to exist in and have led to so much immigration out of Cuba. But I think on the other hand, we want to portray this as a universal story of struggle, of resistance, and also of resilience in the way that both your parents and my parents have endured so much and come out the other side, not unscathed, but have made it possible for us to uh, have a better life. I think those are some of the reasons why we wanted to tell you all about this. When Frida and I were planning out this season, we felt it was really important to explain all of these experiences and what that really means to us as children of people who went through them. And now we become adults and and we have lots of our own opinions that sometimes we don't agree with our parents and sometimes we do. Sometimes it's a lot more complicated than that. And we want to get into much bigger topics within the Cuban-American community. And in order to understand and properly unpack all of those things, I think we had to start here. Yes, yes. Snaps, snaps. <laughs> so, Carmen, what is our cubanismo this time? Lo que está pa ti, nadie te lo quita. Nadie te lo quita. <laughs> no, really. That, that is just so perfect. Lo que está pa ti, nadie te lo quita. What does that mean, Frida? It means what is meant for you, nobody can take away. Things could have gone very different and we could have ended up in a different place. But everything kind of worked out in a very certain way. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Don't forget to check out our blog post and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Pod. Big thanks to our patrons, Jesse, Kellis, Yvette, Josh, and Daniel. Thanks so much for supporting us. And if you want to become a patron, we will be releasing exclusive content on Patreon. So if you want to join that club, feel free to go check out the link for that. Big, warm, wonderful thank you to Frida's parents for their voices and lending their experiences for this episode. It wouldn't be possible without them. And we are eternally grateful. Thank you so much. And don't forget to take it easy. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.